Bismillahirrahmanirrahim ve sallallahu ala seyyidina Muhammedin ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve sellem. Peace and love. I'm Brother Ali. This is the Travelers Podcast. The Travelers Podcast exists because it's not easy to be a human being. It's a really mysterious thing to be. <laughs> like to, just as an as a as a phenomenon, <laughs> like a human being is really a trip. And we benefit so much from seeing our reflections in each other, in comparing notes with each other, uh, in being able to see ourselves through the eyes of other people, uh, to get different ideas about the possibilities of life and what it means. And so I've been really blessed and fortunate to uh, share life with really amazing people because of the fact that my own journey has taken me through so many twists and turns where people live these really amazing outward and inward lives. So I'm a hip hop artist. That's what most people know me for. Um, and I've performed all over the world. I came up with a collective of independent hip hop artists from Minneapolis. You know, a lot of us are people that wouldn't have been accepted. Well, we weren't being accepted by the music industry. And so we worked together and supported each other and found a network of people that were doing that across the country and around the world. And so based on that, I've been able to just interact with a large uh, segment of the, the hip hop culture uh, and the great ones that have done it. I've, I've been able to travel with them and perform with them and learn with them and compare notes with them and collaborate with them and create with them and reflect with them. And then also, I'm a person who converted to Islam and that's something that we'll talk about in this episode too. Uh, and in converting to Islam, I've been able to, to be around a lot of people that I consider to be spiritual giants. Some of them are teachers. Some of them are uh, people that bring community together. And then also I've been in the world of activism and organizing, and I've been able to really be in some amazing situations with these people as well. So all of these are human beings that live an outward life where they 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 project and they they give and they live out loud, they live in the spotlight, they live on stage for the public to see them and benefit from them. And what I've learned is that, you know, there's a metaphor of a tree where the tree's branches grow out into the sky, and you see the tree as this big trunk and all these branches and leaves, the outward expression. But the more we learn about trees, the more we learn that for as big as those branches spread, for as far as they spread into the sky, there's also corresponding to that underneath the ground is an equally expansive network of roots that go deep into the ground that pull from the ground and i've learned that to be the case with so many of these people that i know i've heard people say this old kind of axiom of don't meet your heroes but i'm like man the majority of my heroes that i've met i've learned that they're even more amazing in private than they are in public and when you get to know them uh, there's so much that you can th learn that I've learned from them. So the Travelers podcast about sitting with people like that. Some of them are really well known, like Chuck D and Cornell West and Ilhan Omar and you know Slug from Atmosphere. And we go down the, the list of all these people, Amanda Seals and others. Uh, we got Farrell Monch on the show next week. I just have to shout that out now. Like man, had an amazing conversation with. Um, someone who's in the conversation of greatest of all time, the, the GOATs, the, the top five, or the top lyricists and artists in hip-hop. Feral Munch is in that conversation. And uh, he was put there by 
others that are recognized to be in that position as well. Jay-Z references him, uh, Eminem references him, etc. So a lot of the people and a lot of these conversations are with people like that. But then sometimes I like to also sit and just chop it up with you one-on-one. And that's what I want to do in this episode of the podcast. Um, my family and I picked up and moved. And when I say my family, I'm talking about my wife, of uh, coming up on 19 years, who's originally from the Bronx, and myself, who grew up in the Midwest, uh, moved around a lot and settled in North Minneapolis. North Minneapolis is my, that's the place that I acknowledge as home. That's the place where I became me. And then also we have four children. Uh, one of them is, is a grown man and he didn't come with us to Istanbul. And then we have three daughters and our daughters moved to Istanbul. So we picked up from the Midwest, my wife being originally from New York, and moved to Istanbul in the middle of the pandemic. And it's been a really amazing experience and a really transformative, educational, in a lot of ways really challenging and difficult. And when sometimes people overuse words like adventure, they'll talk about the adventure of building their website or whatever. And like, it is an adventure, you know what I'm saying? Shout out to BK1 that built our website. But like, man, <laughs> moving your family to, to a very, very, you know, and it's not the same as like moving to Canada or moving to England or even moving to places like Europe where life is very, very similar to how it is in the United States. Um, but to move to Istanbul, Turkey, which is a very distinct and very particular and peculiar culture, um, has been an amazing ride. And I've had a lot of people ask me about it. A lot of people are really fascinated with it. And it's something that I really want to share because I think that Westerners, particularly people that live in these these really wealthy kind of nations, um, you know, where English has become the norm, our technological culture has become the norm, our popular culture has become the norm around the world. So people that live in America, Australia, Canada, um, you know, the UK, places where English is spoken, you know, it's really, really good for us to get out of that lifestyle, even for some period of time. And so I want to share my experiences and some reflections of mine. Again, these are going to be mine. You know, some of the things I'm not going to, I'm going to say are not even going to be factually accurate because like, I didn't research this. You know what I mean? This is one person's uh, experience and reflection and observation uh, from picking up and moving my family during the, the course of the pandemic and all these other changes that happened in our lives, moving to Istanbul, Turkey. Uh, this episode is brought to you, as always, by our day ones at Zakat Foundation. They've been sponsoring this work from the very beginning. We're also brought to you by BetterHelp Online Therapy Platform. And this episode is brought to you by an organization that is very, very near and dear to my heart as a person, as a Muslim, as an artist. Uh, it's really important to my family. One of my favorite organizations in the entire world is Iman, the Inner City Muslim Action Network, who's celebrating their 25th anniversary. We'll get to that a little bit later in the episode. But uh, thank you for being here, and please enjoy this episode of the Travelers Podcast. One of the first questions that people always ask when they find out that my family moved to Istanbul is, Why? Like, how did you choose that place? Why did you go there specifically? Why did you leave America at this particular time? And these are all really great questions. And especially, I think people are 
um, intrigued because Turkey and Istanbul feel really exotic. They feel like really far away, distant, kind of exotic lands that we don't know much about. Uh, we live in a neighborhood called Uskudar, which is on the Asian side of Istanbul. Istanbul is an amazing city because it sprawls between and connects the two continents of Europe and Asia. Literally, most of the country of Turkey, uh, which they've officially renamed the way they pronounce it here, which is Turkey. Um, but forgive me, I'm, gonna, I'm probably going to say Turkey a lot. Um, but the country itself is mostly in Asia, but it's but it also moves into Europe. And but most of so most of the country is in Asia, but most of the cities of Istanbul is actually at the easternmost edge of Europe. And then there's a, a strait of water that connects the Black Sea and the Mediterranean called the Bosphorus. And the Bosphorus uh, is the the line uh, of demarcation between Europe and Asia. So on the other side of the Bosphorus is still the city of Istanbul, but that's where Asia begins. And that's where my family lives. And this neighborhood is really beautiful. It's really historic. It's very old school and traditional. It's changing a little bit, and I'll talk about that maybe a little bit more, that honestly people like me and my family coming here are starting to gentrify this neighborhood. And it's not just us. It's also people, you know, wealthier Turks are, are moving to, to uh, Uskudar. And also people from other areas are moving as well. And so it is changing the landscape of Uskudar. And that's one of the, that's one of the honestly challenging points of tension for us moving here and seeing so many other people move here is that we are, whether we'd like to be or not, we are part of uh, gentrifying this area that we've moved to because of the, of the meaning that's here and the history that's here and the culture that's here and the community that's here, you know. And my wife is from the Bronx in Spanish Harlem. We just sat with some folks the other day that were telling us that, uh, you know, a bunch of well-to-do European, like white people are moving to Spanish Harlem and that they're calling it Spaha. And, I mean, that's disgusting to hear that. Like, that's heartbreaking to hear that, you know. My wife's whole family, like, comes from El Barrio, Spanish Harlem, it's really disgusting to hear that, you know, that the South Bronx, that there are people that move to the South Bronx and call it so bro, like so bro. I mean, no disrespect if you're living in that neighborhood, but I'm saying that I have a certain amount of tension and conflict around the fact that, that I, and, and tension is part of life, you know, but I do have a certain amount of tension and it's something to really sit with and wrestle with and think about and be intentional about and be aware of, of the fact that I moved to this place because of the meaning and the beauty that's here and the, and the history that's here. And just my mere presence of me being here and spending money here and having my family here and setting up my life here and then connecting with other English-speaking people in this amazing community, neighborhood of Uskudar, that we're, we're changing it. You know, it's just one of the realities that, that we live with. Uh, but Eartha Kitt back in the days... Uh, recorded a song, like a, a really traditional cultural song about Uskudar. And, you know, she did this during the time when Calypso was really popular. Like if you listen to Harry Belafonte's music and a lot of Calypso music, um, there was this kind of like exotic uh, feeling about other parts of the world because Americans, um, you know, is a, America is a very, very unique and strange country. And most, most people in, in, that live in other parts of the world, countries are smaller. And so 
you live next to borders and you, you travel more and you experience people in other countries with other cultures, with other languages, with other you know, cultures, it's really common to do that. Most people in other parts of the world speak multiple languages. You go to West Africa, the people there speak English, French, Wolof, Mandinka, you know, the people just speak a number of different languages. Uh, and so Americans don't really do that. And so we have this very strange relationship. And especially historically, there's this really strange kind of like weird exotic relationship that we had with other cultures. And there was this thing that happened in the entertainment industry where um, one of the ways that white people would listen to black entertainers and cultural workers and artists is if they kind of embodied uh, white America's vision, both of them, you know, you have these minstrel shows where uh, black people were enlisted to wear blackface and to be caricatures of how white people saw black people. And then also there were white people that would dress in blackface and do the same thing as well. And they typically would be the worst version of themselves, but they would do it in blackface. And it's just something important to know about the historical context, especially for white people doing black cultural art forms. Is like it's important to know, who, you know, the the historical uh, roots of the practices that we have. A white person in a black cultural art form like hip hop, being the worst version of themselves, you know, white artists with a white audience, being, you know, some of the like base level human stuff, but doing it in a black cultural expression and framework, that has a direct tie to minstrel shows, and it has a direct tie to blackface, and it's just important to know that. You know, what you do with that or how you view specific artists, that's another, that's another matter. But it's important to know that. So in any case, I'm saying all this to say one of the things that the white-controlled music industry did was employ black artists to do these really kind of like uh, caricature, like exotic songs and routines about other cultures. And Eartha Kitt was enlisted to do something like this when she got her, her first record deal with RCA Records. And she sang this song called Uskudar, but it's called Uskudara on her record because the, the way that it is in Turkish, Uskudara. But so she performs this song about Uskudar and she said, it's, it's really interesting to go back and listen to it now, you know, because she's like, Uskudar is a little town on the outskirts of Istanbul. And they had, the, the wealthy women there had <laughs> male secretaries and they fed them bird's milk. It's really interesting. And one of the things that's deep, just this, this a little connection for me, something that I found interesting was that she talks in a live version that she recorded later about the fact that people were coming to her, talking to her about this song. And she said that they were saying, Ishka Bibble, Ishka Bibble, Ishka Bibble, Ishka Bibble. And she's like, what is Ishka Bibble? And it was them trying to pronounce Ushkudar. Uh, Ishka Bibbles, for people that know Philly, is the famous, uh, one of the famous Philly cheesesteak spots, and they're known for the, the chicken Philly. Uh, they're right across the street from the TLA on South Street in Philly. It's just interesting, you know what I'm saying? You find all these, these connections. And I, so I'd be curious to do some research on Ishka Bibbles and see if that's where they got their name. But it's like, oh man, this really iconic uh, chicken Philly cheesesteak spot. Is, uh, might be named after the neighborhood that I live in now. But Uskudar. Um, so I say all that to say that uh, Istanbul is, it, I understand why people are really intrigued by it, and I was as well, because it feels so exotic, you know what I'm saying? Um, you know, the Ottomans, uh, 
and Turkey in general as an as, as a convert to Islam. And I think Muslims around the world have this kind of like loose knowledge, this this just kind of feeling that there was this sultanate that some people call an empire. Some people call it the Ottoman Empire. I got a dear friend here that I actually really, it's important for me to shout out. One of my dear friends in Uskadar is a brother named Abu Ayyub. He's a convert to Islam like myself. Uh, he's of Colombian ethnicity and heritage. And he grew up in Queens and um, moved to Istanbul. He's studied Islam really seriously, but he really loves the history. My man Abu Ayyub does spiritual tours. If you go to his website, and he's not a sponsor of the podcast, but he's just my man, and I, I just I love for people to, to be able to benefit from stuff like this. Istanbul Spiritual Tours. Um, he teaches classes about the Ottoman, the history of the Ottomans. He does amazing tours, especially from a spiritual, religious, historical perspective. If it's your first time in Istanbul or if you've been coming here for 30 years, trust and believe that my man Abu Ayyub can show you things and teach you about history that you did not know about. Even if you've been to some of these sites, like say you've been to Abu Ayyub al-Ansari, if you've been to, uh, you know, the Grand Bazaar, if you've been to the Suleymaniyya, if you've been to these different places, go there again with my man Abu Ayyub and just see how your understanding and appreciation and spiritual connection to these people and places, how it becomes deeper. But my man Abu Ayyub was saying to me the other day, we have to stop saying Ottoman Empire, because when we use the term empire, what we as Westerners think about will be the English Empire, the British Empire. And what they did with the concept of empire is much different from what other people in the world have done. And so we shouldn't even use the same language. But the Ottoman Caliphate were the last uh, legitimate uh, custodians and caretakers and um, administrators of the Muslim world. And they controlled and administer, ad administrated things on behalf of the entire Muslim world, almost. They controlled Mecca and Medina. Uh, the, the holiest places they controlled, uh, Philistine, which is now called Israel, uh, some of it, you know. Uh, but they controlled, and, and they were the, the custodians, the caretakers, the administrators of all of these lands. And the history is really, really incredible. So as a Muslim, especially as a convert, like we know about this period, and we know also that the Ottomans, that they were very, very deeply, profoundly, religious, but they don't speak Arabic. They're, they're, they're not Arabic, they're Ajami, what we call non-native Arabic speakers. So they're non-Arabs that control the Muslim world. You know, so many people think that, well, Muslims are Arabs, it's like the same. The reality is only 20% of the world's Muslims are Arab. Most of us, most of the Muslims in the world are not Arab. Most of the Muslims in the world live uh, in, in Asia, in um, you know, uh, Malaysia and Indonesia and Singapore and other places like that. Uh, in West Africa, you know, there were many, many Muslims in, in North Africa, in East Africa, in South Africa. Uh, there, there are entire Muslim civilizations in Eastern Europe. Um, really, really amazing history. But so for those of us that converted to Islam and are not Arab to know that the last real leaders in the Muslim world were not Arabic speakers and they weren't Arabs, it means a lot. But now on top of that, they're known for having this, this very serious authority in religious knowledge, in theology and in 
the outward practice of Islam, and then also in tasawwuf or Sufism or the sciences that deal with how to become a sincere person, how to become inwardly uh, what we are, what we would like to be outwardly. So the outward practice of religion is one thing, but at the, the mysteries of the heart and, and what it means to actually be a human being are so incredibly nuanced. And the Turks are known for being masters of that. And then they include art with that as well. They include aesthetic beauty. So some of the greatest architects, some of the greatest uh, calligraphers, some of the greatest musicians, some of the greatest poets. So, you know, Rumi is buried here uh, in Konya, about a, you know, a short you know, trip from Istanbul. So we know this. This is something that's in our not, but we don't even know much about this culture and this society. You know, Turkish language is a very specific, particular language. It's not like English. It's not like Arabic. The rest of the Muslim world, if you know English and or Arabic, you can get along just fine. One of the things about about Turkey is like they are not impressed that you're American. You know, if you go to the Gulf region and you tell them you're American, especially if you're a convert, they're like, wow, amazing. Ahlan wa sahlan, Habib, Habib, come, like, come, you know, yalla, yalla, come, like, sit with us and eat with us. And it's, it's, they're very impressed with that. The Turks are not impressed <laughs> that you are American. They don't want to hear English. Like, Turks speak Turkish. Turkje. Turkje orin yorin. Like when we're learning Turkish and it's not an easy language to learn, you know, it's one of the main like challenges of living here. Um, but so we, we have an idea that there's this beautiful place and this beautiful culture and this beautiful civilization that means a lot to us. You know, when, when Istanbul was first uh, taken for, for the Muslims, uh, there was talk about calling it Islambul, which means like a city for all Muslims. Um, and it's also a place where we talked about um, when when uh, Jews were being kicked out of Europe during the time that the Ottomans were in power here, uh, Bayezid, who was the sultan at that time, not only sent for the Jewish community to come and live in Istanbul, he said that they were citizens, immediately, immediate citizens uh, of this city. And he also said, he wrote, or specific order saying nobody can refuse to rent to them or sell property to them. Nobody can refuse them employment. Nobody can boycott them in business. You have to fully. And they protected them. And they protected the Jewish community here as well. You know, there's a lot of very complicated history there as well. But this is history that we, some of the stuff that we are aware of. So in 2013, I'm going to stop for a second and let you hear the Adhan in the background. Turn my mic up, actually. I'm going to come back. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause for a second. I'm actually going to come back because that call to prayer is one of the things I really want to talk about. Okay, that, uh, that call to prayer means that it's time to pray. <laughs> we'll get to that in a second, but... Um, you know, one of the things that I, I wanted to mention is that in 2013, um, my wife and I both, we each spent half of the summer with Imam Zaid Shakar and organizations that he's a part of. Imam Zaid was the, he was on the Travelers podcast uh, a few weeks back, and we're really honored to have been able to sit with him and to call him our teacher and our elder and our brother. 
Imam Zaid was the spiritual advisor for Muhammad Ali, and he led Muhammad Ali's funeral prayers, both the Islamic one and then the public one. And he is known as the people's imam. He's also the founder, co-founder of the first fully accredited Islamic college, uh, which is in the Bay Area. He, so I spent the first half of the summer of 2013 in the Bay Area uh, studying Arabic at that college. And they do these things that they call intensives, which basically means that as a student, maybe you're, you're past college age, but you still want to take the study seriously. You might not have four years to drop everything and dedicate, but maybe you can set aside a month or two to really sit down and focus as much as possible to be in an immersive environment. So the first half of that summer I spent in, uh, the school is in Berkeley, and I lived in Oakland with Amir Suleiman and some amazing people. Uh, Amir Suleiman was also on the podcast a few weeks back. And then, so my wife stayed home with the kids, and then I went home and watched the kids, and my wife went, or came, to Turkey uh, with an organization called Rihla, which means that you travel to learn, you travel seeking knowledge. And they do what they call a deen intensive. Deen is what the Muslims call our religion. And it's more than a religion, it's really an entire way of life. It's an outlook and an approach to, to living life and being human. So in a deen intensive, which is what she, came, she did, um, a group of about maybe 50 to 100 people travel and converge from different parts of the English-speaking world uh, upon a, a traditionally Muslim culture and land. And then these amazing high-caliber world-class teachers from around the world that speak English come and they're basically given an intensive, immersive uh, learning experience over the course of multiple weeks. I think hers was maybe a month or six weeks or something. I don't remember exactly, but uh, over that period of time, they're, they're given a, kind of a crash course on the three major areas of Islamic study, which are theology, like what do we believe, the outward practice of the religion, what does it mean to live as a Muslim, to wash and to pray and to fast and to give charity and to to be married and to raise children and inheritance and all of the the kind of ethical practice-related aspects of living as a Muslim. And then that third category, which is spiritual refinement, dealing with the inner reality of the heart, trying to become a good person on the inside so that we're not just doing an outward practice of religion, but that it's actually transformative for us, that brings us to the most beautiful, polished, uh, whole version of who we are. And so when the Muslims say, Assalamu alaikum, which is how we begin it in the podcast, what we're saying is, may you be whole, may you be complete. And so these are the three main aspects. But they also, when you go on these trips, you also, um, you learn things like uh, history, um, you learn about some cultural things about the place that you are in. And so my wife spent several weeks in Konya, where Rumi is buried, the great uh, jurist. You know, people know Rumi as being a, a poet because he's one of the greatest poets that ever lived. But Rumi also was a Hanafi legal scholar of Islam. He was a judge, like he was a Sharia law judge. That was his profession. And then he had the, uh, the greeting in this encounter with amazing visitor Shams, which means son, Tabrizi, from a place called Tabriz, who came and basically challenged him and said, when are you going to stop just reading this from books and just doing it outwardly? And when are you going to really be what you're learning and teaching to people? 
And Rumi says, no, you're absolutely right. And it just kicked off this amazing spiritual intimacy between these two people. And then Shemps disappeared. And some people say that Shemps was killed, maybe even by Rumi's students, because they were threatened by his challenging of their teacher and this challenging of their, you know, just having like an outward practice of religion without being transformed inwardly. Uh, so some people say that he was killed, and then other people say that he left. But either way, Rumi lived the rest of his life with the heartbreak of losing his dear friend, his spiritual companion, you know. And so, so much of Rumi's poetry is about the spirituality of love and loss and examining and exploring the spiritual path. Because as a spiritual aspirant, as a person that wants to to grow and become more complete spiritually, it's like whatever is going on in my life, this is the way that I will become spiritual. I don't leave my life to become spiritual. I dig in. This is my assignment. This is my course of study. It are the things that are going on inside my heart and my life. And so this is where my wife came to study Islam. And when she came back, they spent a lot of the time in, in Konya, but they spent time in Istanbul. So when my wife came back from this trip, she announced to us, first of all, the legal school that we were going to follow. In Islam, there, in, in Sunni Islam, there are different um, modes of practice. And the one that we have, uh, we're, we practice the Maliki school, uh, which was really prominent in West Africa. And when the Muslims were in Spain and Portugal and Sicily, that's what they practiced. So in any case, she came back and said, we're Maliki, because that's what she had studied. And I hadn't studied th those things yet. And she said, and someday we're going to live in Istanbul. I'm just telling you that right now. Now I had never been here before. But just, you know, my wife is a really intuitive person. And when she says things like that, I take them really seriously. You know, she has just a type of intuition that I've learned over the years to just really trust. That if she doesn't feel good about somebody when she first meets them, that's probably not somebody I should invest a lot of myself and my time and my heart with. If she feels good about somebody, that's, and that's somebody that I want to be with. If she feels good about a place or a time or an event, I mean, she just, she has spidey senses or woman senses or uh, Bronx senses. She's just, there's something about when she says things like that, she's not joking, you know? And I could tell you stories about things that she's predicted, uh, but I won't do that right now. And maybe that's not even anybody's business. But in any case, she came home and said, we're going to live in Istanbul. And I just knew it was true when she said that. I just started kind of internally preparing for that. And then we had several friends move here, so we started to come and visit. And it feels like it's a faraway, exotic place, but really anywhere in Europe, you can get a cheap flight to Istanbul and um, inexpensive. And also, it's, it's not a long flight. It's only a few hours. So, I mean, it's from anywhere in Europe, you can be in Istanbul in a couple hours, and it's very inexpensive to do that. So I started whenever I was coming through the Middle East or Europe, I would stop in Istanbul, visit friends, and just soak up this city. And I immediately fell in love with it. I've got um, I have videos from when I first moved here or when I first visited. Um, I was visiting a friend and like we came just to their neighborhood mosque and um, I was just videotaping the walk up to the mosque in these tiny little uh, cobblestone streets in this, you know, this old part of the city. 
and hearing the Adhan be called, hearing the, hearing the call to prayer, and seeing all these people hustling and bustling and like going to the mosque, and we're like all walking quickly to the You know, as a convert, this isn't something that we live with all the time. I've visited Muslim places. I've been to Mecca and Medina, and I've been to you know, West Africa and South, uh, different places in Africa. I've been to Egypt and been to Lebanon. I've been places, but, you know, it never gets old, you know. So anyway, this place that I took these videos of to show my wife, like, we live here now. Like, that's my neighborhood mosque now. You know, I, I pray there multiple times a week now. Like, I just live in this place, you know. So it's a place that just really, like, lives in my heart and it started that way from the second my wife said that and then it just grew and grew and grew so then in 2020 we hit the pandemic came and as an independent hip-hop artist people think because you've been on tv or because you're on stage and that means you're rich and it's hilarious to anybody that does this for a living i mean even people that have hit records and i have i have no hit records you know, like I've opened for Nelly and I've like done all these people that have legitimate hits, you know. I don't have those. I don't have radio records. I don't have hit records. I'm, yes, I've been on TV and I've been around people and I've been, you know, I have proximity to stuff, you know. But um, there's just, we're not rich. That's just how we don't live like that. Our richness is in other ways. Our, our wealth comes in the form of freedom our, to not only of movement and time but also to explore ourselves and to do stuff like this so my wife is a therapist and she does community mental health which means that she works with other poor people <laughs> you know what I'm saying and um <laughs> she's like one of a small handful of black women therapists in the twin cities and it's really important to her that she works with women and she deals she works on trauma with women because that's what brought her to the work and it's just so dope and I'm just so just proud of her like I'm so just proud to be connected to her of all these people that are on this podcast she's one of the people that I'm just so proud to just know and be connected to um so but her work had already moved online and during the uprising you know that that summer of 2020 like we were living in South Minneapolis and her office is right near George Floyd Square right in the heart of where the uprising was where things were being burned and where the police were shooting people with rubber bullets and where they had murdered George Floyd and where they, uh, you know, uh, people were driving a truck barreling in on a bridge, barreling into peaceful protesters. And it was a really intense time. And so, and, and it was really triggering a lot of PS, uh, 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 PTSD from my wife. And she was holding and caring for women. So in that time, like I was really, I spent that particular time during the uprising. And I'm a community organizer and activist, so I wanted to be in the streets. And I did some of that. But mostly I was realizing like, I have a wife who's directly serving women. And we have these daughters and she needs to know that she, it, like it's time for me to do what Chris Rock calls playing tambourine. Like, no, you, you're, not the, you're, not, you're not the lead singer right now, homie, you're on tambourine. And so that's what we did, but she, her work moved online and my work basically went away. The work that actually pays me, which is performing for people or speaking. And so financially it was really tough and we couldn't be in space anyway. So it kind of was like, man, number one, can we afford to live in America? And two, do we have to be in America right now? 
you know, might this be the opportunity that we've been looking for? And then another thing that happened that I'll, I'm, I, I don't think I'm going to I think I want to record like a full episode just kind of unpacking this together, um, is that in the Twin Cities after the uprising and kind of in the wake of it, um, there was, you know, there's all these terms for this phenomenon that goes on in, in society now, especially on Twitter, especially online. Some people call it cancel culture or accountability culture or reckoning. Um, but there was that type of thing in the music community in the Twin Cities. And it was very um, kind of complicated for me because it started from people telling their stories about racism. And that's very near and dear to my heart. It's something that's at the center of what I've always done um, in my music, in my organizing and activism, in my spiritual and religious life that's you know and then also women telling stories and sharing experiences that they had had and airing grievances that they had but it really it really kind of overtook that community and the way that it felt was that along with the importance of telling the truth along with the importance of people who have been wronged having the right to speak about that uh, it really there was a climate of People in that community really came apart at the seams in a lot of ways. And like I said, nobody really came for me. But it just was that this community felt like um, what, what at one time felt like a very competitive, you know, uh, community of artists. And, you know, this, just because we call ourselves a community doesn't mean we're not also competitive. And that was where a lot of the, a lot of the layers came in. And a lot of the nuance came in because a lot of the people that were saying that certain artists ought to be uh, held responsible for this, this, uh, these things that were happening, a lot of them were also artists, and that's where the that's where the uh, that's where it became complicated, you know. So in any case, the place that I lived for all these years didn't feel like community to me, you know. the The people that were saying these things online. Um, you know, I, I, I wasn't really aware of, uh, conversations that were happening between people, you know, the, the, like, these are all people that have each other's phone numbers or could get it easily. These are all people that have known each other, have lived with each other, have traveled together, have friends in common, have babies with each other, have, you know, used to be romantic partners. Like this, there, there's a lot of but it was just these statement after statement of, I disassociate myself from this person and this institution and this organization and, you know, this, uh, you know, just people saying, I don't mess with them. I'm throwing them away to try to, it felt like they were just trying to get out of it. I let anybody say whatever they want about me. Um, and I've never, I've never come for anybody uh, personally. I've never come at any person. And it's not that I haven't felt wronged because I certainly have. By you know, I have uh, gone on the record again, like organizing against and putting pressure on and speaking publicly about the radio station in the Twin Cities, the newspaper in the Twin Cities, uh, the state fair. You know, all of those while I was being at, while I was in the spotlight, and to me, that's what my organizing is about, and that's what what my thing is about. So, in any case. That was another one of the, the things that, that we were experiencing during that time where it's like, man, you know, do we have to live life the way we've always lived it? Do we always have to live where we've always lived it? And maybe this is an opportunity for us to experience something different. 
So we made the decision to move to Istanbul, and it was traumatic. I mean, there's just no way around it. Um, this house that we lived in, you know, me and my wife were very, like, transient for a lot of our lives, you know. Uh, my family moved from city to city. We never, it was very rare that we were in any one place for longer than a year. And, you know, my parents both died young, and they died without assets. Um, they died without money. And my wife comes from, a, you know, really challenging background of poverty as well. It's like cycles of, of institutional, you know, poverty as well. So we bought a house. It's one of the things that we did early on in our relationship. We bought a house and we both said like, man, we would be like, we're not losing this house. We're raising our children here, you know? And we, our daughter, especially the eldest one, she lived in that house her whole life and neither one of us had that, you know? So for us to pack up that house um, in the very short period of time that we did and uh, we got rid of most of our possessions we got one little storage unit, and what we brought to this country when we came here was, man, it's really, it's, it was a traumatic experience. Um, and maybe it was self-imposed, but it didn't feel that way. Uh, at the time, it felt like this is a way that we can live a healthy life, and this is a way that we can still keep hope and growth and curiosity and optimism very real in the focus. I'm saying, like, people that I that I had shared these experience and shared life experiences with weren't talking to each other and were, were like outwardly distancing, were writing statements, I don't rock with this person, I don't rock with that. And so you're reading online that the, this person that I love doesn't talk to me and my, and, and my friends anymore. And that if I don't, this feeling of like, if, if I don't come out and say that I'm disavowing all these people that I've lived my life with, then something's wrong with me, even though no one's accusing me of anything. You know, it, it was very challenging, man, really difficult. Um, and so it really felt like, and then also the financial thing is just creeping up on us every single month. Our lives were very expensive because I'm self-employed, you know, and my, my wife has an awesome career, but it's not a high paying one. You know, it's just not like whenever you really want to serve the people, that's probably not going to be a high paying thing both in music and in activism, organizing, and in mental health. So it felt like we needed to get up out of there pretty quickly. And so we gave away and threw away most of what we owned. We came to this country with four big duffel bags and like our computers. And I'm sitting here looking at, um, you know, I had just gotten into producing. I mean, I've been producing, but I did the Brother Minister project and stuff. I brought an ASR-10 keyboard, which is this like enormous sampler from 1995. I had, to, I had to have a special case built so I could bring it on the plane. And I brought a turntable and a, a little recording setup. And we moved to a country where we only knew about two or three people. And we were just determined to start life here. And we got here, we stayed in, stayed in an Airbnb for a couple weeks. And it's very, very challenging. Um, we were able to be connected with somebody that speaks English that helped us get an apartment. And we got a beautiful apartment that we never could have afforded in, in America. This place, like we, neither one of us have ever lived in a place like this. You know, it's bigger than our other place. You know, we got two bathrooms. It's 
a lot of wood and marble and these big, beautiful windows that look out over the Bosphorus. And, but we moved in and we didn't have anything. Like we, and we didn't have much money, no money coming in. So we started, I started by buying beds. And so for, a, for about a month or two, all we had were beds. And we ate, our de- we ate our food sitting on the floor or we sat on the beds. And then we bought, got some little money together and we bought some couches. And then a then month or so later, we bought a dinner table and some chairs. And then we bought some dishes and things like that. Um, we had to get new phones. We had to uh, apply for a permanent residency. And it's a whole process that you go through. Um, we, it was a struggle to get bank accounts. I mean, literally everywhere you walk and everywhere you go and everything you try to do, people do not speak a word of English. And Turkish is a very, very, very difficult language. So you're just navigating that everywhere you go. The other thing is that, I mean, Turkish culture is just, their relationship with time is very different. Um, you know, if someone says they're going to come, like we're texting people on WhatsApp and we're using Google Translate to try to have a, a, a kind of a broken Turkish conversation with people. Can you please come and turn the electricity on? Can you please, can I please get the heat turned on? Um, you know, is my phone plan prepaid or do I pay every month? Is this phone going to be in my wife's name or is this in my name? We're trying to get internet set up, Wi-Fi set up at our apartment because my wife needs to see her clients. They're depending on her, you know. So all of this stuff, man, like every every single aspect of life, trying to get curtains. The curtains hang on these tracks. It's not like curtains in America. Just all these little things, you know, the, they don't have the same spices here. So we're trying to learn how to cook. All the things, that, and I can cook, y'all. Like I don't, just, I can cook <laughs> in America. But in Turkey, it's just like, man, this butter doesn't taste like our butter tastes. These... You know, paprika, smoked paprika here is not what I'm used to, and they call it something different. And the the seasonings are different. The meat tastes different. The the everything tastes different. The vegetables are different. The fruits different. You know, tr- everything about it is different. Uh, you gotta, you know, th- and then they had these codes that you had to have for for the pandemic. The other thing is, we got here, and it's a pandemic, and they took it very seriously here. And the the Turks are are people that really believe in order. They're very orderly people. They're very clean people. They're amazing people. Um, you know, I guess we could talk for a second about just the goodness of the Turkish people. So, and, you know, they had this, this, this major kind of shift in their history where this was the home of the Ottoman Empire for 500 years. But then they also had, uh, in, the, in the 1920s, they were never conquered by Europe. They were never taken over by Europe. But they had the leader of this country, uh, the one that actually established the nation state of Turkey. Um, you know, he def- he defeated the European would-be invaders. But he also had, I just want to be very polite and tread lightly about this, but he had a very complicated relationship with Islam, let's say it that way. And... I mean, Muslim teachers were killed. It was it became illegal to to have Arabic in public. Um, he did away with a lot of the the really sacred parts of Muslim life. And then since then, I think it's okay to say that the Turks have been uh, kind of like reaching a new equilibrium with religion and secularism. And 
So that's something that's going on here. But I will say, so there are Turks that are very religious. There are Turks that are, you know, basically religious. But even the very religious Turks are not like very religious Muslims in other places. They're very open. They're very open to culture. Um, they're not weird about men and women. One of the things that I love about Islam and that my wife and daughters love about Islam is that, you know, Islam just really respects privacy and personal space of women. So when you go to most public places in, in Muslim places, the public spaces are shared by men and women, but there's always areas of privacy for Muslim women. And it's not just expected that you will touch them. You know what I mean? Like you don't have the right to shake their hand or to hug them or, you know, um, for example, like if, if, if I'm walking on a sidewalk, they have these little sidewalks and no two blocks of a Turkish street, especially in my neighborhood, are the same. It's just very, it's very different all over the place. And so if I'm walking on, a high, on, the, on the sidewalk, and even if it's a really busy road and there's a small place to pass and there's women coming, as a man, I'm going to step into the street and let them pass just because they have the right of way. They have the right to privacy. They have the right to space. And... Um, you know, and and they're going to decide whether or not we have a conversation, whether or not like they Muslim women control, um, and and again in, in other societies it's it's carried out in very different ways, but in Turkey this is how it is. But there's not like weirdness between men and women. You know, they just restored this beautiful mosque in our neighborhood and took my daughters over there to pray and hear the Quran recitation. And in the, you know, the, the main hall of the mosque is for men, but then upstairs there's an equally beautifully oriented area for women. So women are looking down over the whole thing so they can see everything, but, not, but the people downstairs can't see them. Uh, but when we got there, there's a woman who's walking around and she's just examining everything and marveling at all the beautiful stuff. And my children, my daughters are just like running around crazy and the... The people in the mosque are like giving them candy. I mean, children are just public property here. Like the Turks love children. They just love them. And you just got to get used to it. As Americans, we're like, don't touch my kids. But in Turkey, it's like they're going to pick your kids up. They're going to talk to them. They're going to give them food and they're not going to ask you about it. They might take their pictures, um, but they just they're they just love kids. And it's really beautiful, you know. Um, we had some friends come here. I'm, I'm tangent, man, so please bear with me and all this stuff. But we had some friends come from Chicago, um, and uh, we went to this mosque. And so all of our kids are together. And, I mean, they are being loud, man. They were being very rambunctious. And we went into the mosque to pray, and we saw this elder man who's the caretaker of the mosque notice the children and then get up. And the homie from Chicago is like, this uncle's about to yell at our kids. And me and my man, Amir Rahman, the comedian who also lives in my neighborhood, one of my really good friends here, we were just like, we just looking at each other like, no, he's not. In other Muslim cultures and countries, and even in America, in certain mosques, the adults might yell at the kids, be quiet, don't you know this is the house of Allah? I'm like, we hate that. Like, don't do that to the kids. Like, the kids should love this place, you know. But in Istanbul, in Turkey, in Turkey, it's like, man, this guy got up and he disappeared for a minute and he came back. With treats, he went to the store and he bought treats for the kids. He's like, I'm so sorry, I'm supposed to have treats for you guys. And he just gave them treats, you know what I mean? And it's a very beautiful relationship that they have with kids. Um, but the Turks, even the people that are not outwardly religious, 
they do have Islamic manners and they have Islamic sensibilities because they lived as Muslims for so long. So their relationship with cleanliness, their relationship, their, their manners are just amazing. Like they just have really beautiful manners as a people. And there's a feeling of togetherness that like Turks argue with each other on the street. And, you know, they, there's, they, they honk at each other and might even get out in traffic and yell at each other. And I've even seen a couple things that are supposed to be maybe fistfights, but it's just like, dude, you guys are not trying to hurt each other. This is just an outward display of like, you got to respect me. Don't you know who I am? That's, they just yelled at each other in Turkish. Don't you know who I am? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But overall, our experience has been that these people are just very, very noble. They really respect elders. The other thing is that you know, even in Turkish language, there's a way to speak to somebody with respect. And you speak to everybody you don't know personally in this more formal turn of, terms of respect. Um, and that's something that we learn as Muslims, that we call everyone sir and ma'am. And we also call everyone brother and sister. You know, and as this conversation around gender is becoming more complicated and things, and I've, I've just started calling people my friend until I know differently, you know, but we were raised calling each other sir and ma'am, brother and sister. And in Istanbul and in Turkish, actually, these, these, uh, la the language of formality isn't gendered. So it's, it's, um, it's easier to do. And so just this goodness between people is really present. Um, amazing story that, uh, that I'll share. We were going on a boat trip on the Bosphorus. Uh, some of our friends, my Quran teacher and some friends of ours, some elders, some of the homies from America, their dads moved here. These old school white Jewish brothers in the 70s became Muslim, a bunch of them. And they lived all over the place. They lived in Morocco. They lived in Spain. They lived in England. They, you know, uh, this amazing stories these men have had. Maybe I'll interview some of them on the podcast, but... Uh, these are their, their kids that are friends of ours from our generation. So we're on this party on the Bosphorus. One of, their, one of the little kids had a birthday party. And they, they, catered, they rented a boat and catered a meal. And you can afford to do stuff like that without being rich here. So we had this beautiful time. So as we're stepping off the boat, my wife is like helping lift some of the kids off the boat. And her Apple Watch falls off. Now, my wife has lost hella stuff in the Bosphorus. Like we joke with her, like mommy just loves losing stuff in the Bosphorus. Her sunglasses blow off into the water. Her She's just lost all kind of stuff in the Bosphorus. And her Apple Watch fell in the little one foot area between the boat and the dock. Like she literally has got a, a foot on the boat, a foot on the dock. She's lifting kids off the boat and her her watch falls in the water. And we watch it sink all the way to the bottom, very like clean water. Watch it sink all the way to the bottom. And it's just like, nope, we're not even talking about it. Because I know what, <laughs> what my wife's Apple products mean to her. You know what I'm saying? She, she really uses her stuff. It's not, they're not toys to her, they're tools. So her losing her watch means it's, that's a big thing that to happen to her. So it sinks to the bottom of the sea and there's just nothing we can do about it. And so we just go and we move on. A few months later, I start getting phone calls from a number that I don't recognize, a Turkish number I don't recognize. And immediately, this is giving me anxiety because I'm like, I'm going to pick up this phone. This person will probably, the, the likelihood of this person speaking any English is almost none. And when I tell them I don't speak Turkish or I'm what I say is I'm, Tur I'm learning Turkish, uh, can you please speak English? No, they can't. It's just uh, like, I know this is going to be 
like an anxious situation for me. So I pick it up, try to talk. I can't figure it out. So finally, I get a photo of a man's arm with a pink Apple watch on WhatsApp. They texted me a photo. And so on WhatsApp, we start doing that. I start doing this translate thing. What I realize is that the Apple watch over the course of three months washed down shore to another city on the coast of Turkey, on the southern coast of Turkey. It, it washed all the way down shore. Somebody, this man, saw it at the bottom of the sea, fished it out of the sea, went and bought a charger for it. Now, one of the things to know is part of the reason why we're able to live here is because Turkey is having a financial crisis. When we moved, when our friends moved here a few years ago, the exchange rate was $1 was four Turkish lira. When we moved here, $1 was seven Turkish lira. Right now, one U.S. dollar is 18 Turkish lira. They're, they're having extreme financial difficulty. And their nobility in dealing with it is amazing. You do not see a lot of crime in Turkey. My wife and I are both from the hood. We do not have feelings of danger. People stare at us, you know what I'm saying? My wife is one of, there's not a lot of black people here. You know what I mean? And that's, that's one of the big things that we really miss. But we have, you know, we have friends that live here and we connect with them and stuff. But my wife is like, yeah, people look at me because they don't see a lot of black people. But she's like, I never feel danger, which in America she does. And I do. And, and not only danger from stuff like that, but also just from crime. There's just not up. Like crime is not part of, li- of daily life, at least where we live. And we don't live in a rich neighborhood. You know, our neighborhood is really mixed uh, financially. But you don't see a lot of homeless people. Every now and then you'll see somebody sleeping on a bench. But there's not just pe- houseless people, in this, unhoused people sleeping in the streets. There's not encampments of people. You just don't see that. And there's not a lot of crime. So these people in, that, that find this watch, they fish it out of the sea. They go and they buy a charger. They plug the watch in and charges it. First of all, it still works after months of being at the bottom of the sea. They turn it on and they, it never even occurs to them to sell it or to keep it. But they're saying, we have to find out who this belongs to and return it to them. Side note, my friend Amir lost his bank card and this elder Turkish man took it to the bank. And Amir got a phone call from the bank saying, we have your bank card. And he said, oh, okay, I'll be in that neighborhood tomorrow. Can I pick it up tomorrow? So they said, somebody returned your bank card. He's like, oh, of course they did. But can I come pick it up tomorrow? And they said, no, you don't understand. This elder, this uncle that brought your card in, he's standing here and he's not going to leave until he hands it to the person who it belongs to. You know what I mean? Like this is like these people are like this, man. I had story after story. Maybe I'll tell more like this. So these, this family finds this watch, this Apple watch, and they track me down. And the, the young lady that's talking to me is the daughter of the man who found it. She says, I'm so sorry, but I have to add, we want to send you your watch. Um, our family doesn't have money, and I, I, I hate to do this, but can you please send us the money for the charger and the postage to send the watch to you? And so I transferred the money, and I said, is it okay if we give you a reward? And she said, no, our reward is with Allah. You know what I mean? And like there are Turkish families that are having trouble feeding themselves and like and eating. 
You know what I'm saying? Like there are Turkish families that have always been middle class and have always been, you know, financially secure and have food security and things like that that don't have that anymore. And the fact that they found this like $500 watch or whatever it is, you know, that they could sell or they could keep and have a toy, you know what I'm saying? Just have some relief. They didn't steal it from anybody. They found it. But they went and spent money that they didn't really have so that they could plug it in to find out who it belonged to so that they could return it. And then when we started talking, she probably noticed my Turkish is messed up. They tried talking to me on the phone. And so she started asking me about the family. Where are you from? Why do you live here? And I'm telling them, me and my wife converted to Islam. And she's just like, mashallah, thank you for gifting, give, giving our country the gift of your presence. Um, if you ever come this way, you have to come to our house. She's like, please come here. Like, just take a weekend and take the train here. We want you to come eat at our house. And if if we're in Uskudar, we want to come and visit you. And just beautiful. And these people are just really, really, very, very, very beautiful. You know. So the the Turkish people are just incredible, and it's it's a tremendous it's a tremendous education. You know, when we come from a country where, like, in America, everybody is at each other's throat. It's not just the music community I was in, but I'm saying I don't know a family that's not torn apart with, like, every part of life. Every part about life is something that we, that we argue about to the point of it being existential. Like, do I even want to know you anymore? based on who the president is. And it's not that these things are small, they're big. But I'm saying like, man, we don't have trust in any public institution. There's no collective trust in any public institution. Not the news, you know, the media, not um, the police, not the medical industry, you know, the, the medical field. There's nothing about life that we agree on as people, very little. Except for that we all want to eat, we all want to be entertained, we all want to be distracted. But that's the only thing that we really seem to agree on, is we want to be distracted from the important stuff of life. And then we argue about everything. And in Istanbul, I mean, in Turkey, in Turkey, people are going through very real stuff, and they do not agree. You know what I'm saying? It's not that they don't have their very, very serious disputes. But there's a feeling here that like people still belong to each other. You know, I went, I was in, um, I went back to America for the Travelers Tour recently, the, the west part of it, and we're going to do the east part. I leave in about a week. And being in America, I, was, I went to Portland, which I have always known as a city that, <laughs> Portland is dope. It's one of the cities I love, I really love. Portland is very progressive, and it's very white, and it's very, um, you know, Portland has its own vibe to it. But when I was there this time, it felt very different. It felt dangerous, and it felt volatile, and it felt rough, and it felt it felt hood, and it felt danger. You know, it's just danger in the air. And I'm walking, and I'm like, you know, there's all these people there that are that are well to do, and then there's all these like unhoused people in the streets, like just doing, you know struggling with their addictions and, and dependencies and things in public. And I'm like, man, I, w I walked and like I felt so alone. And I held a sold out show there that night. And like people were recognizing me on the street and stuff. I realized like, man, I feel so alone being in America. 
There's something about that society that's really alienating. And I realize that like so much of what people are searching for, I think in America, again, this is just my reflection, but so much of what people are searching for is just a sense of belongingness, a sense of worthiness and validation, just a sense that I belong to someone and I belong somewhere and they belong to me and that can't be questioned. I'm not going to be kicked out of my community because I know somebody who's accused of doing something horrible to somebody else that I, that I didn't even know about. I'm not going to be kicked out of my family because I got the vaccine or didn't get the vaccine or wear a mask or don't wear a mask or, you know, I'm, I, I think this way or that way about abortion or police abolition or whatever. I, like in American life, people are kicked out of everything and everywhere. Not to mention that the people whose land it actually is, like the people who taught everyone how to live on this land, the indigenous people, it's, it's genocide. You know what I'm saying? The first human beings on earth, African people, brought to America, forced to build America for free and still don't, still aren't able to participate, still having all their culture stolen, all of their things stolen from them. And then the meaning that I find in life and, and the, way, the thing that people celebrate me for is one of the things that's stolen from them. It's a lot of just, and, and people wanting to feel famous because famous is the closest thing that we have to actually belonging. And if I'm famous, then at least I don't have to validate and explain to people my existence. I don't have to defend my right to exist if I'm famous. And so people look to get famous by any means necessary. Some of these people that shoot up the school or whatever, they just want their name on TV. They just want people to know who they are. You know what I mean? And a bunch of other evil stuff too and twisted stuff too and everything else. But a lot of times people that come forward and, tell, and, and, and you know, share stories or rail against people, you know, they want to be a person online just to be a person somewhere. Like we do not feel like we belong. And being in Istanbul and being in Turkey and being in Turkey, it's like, man, these people belong to each other. I feel the same way in West Africa. I feel the same way in other places where, and in West Africa, people have even less financially than they have in, in Istanbul. It's dirt roads and people, you know, it's rough. People are struggling, but people belong to each other. And they don't even know that that's what they have. When I try to explain that to them, they just can't fathom it. They're like, no, but I disagree with them. But I'm like, but you eat with them every day and you love them and you're married to each other's family members. And like, you would never, you don't send your parents away to, to like die in an old folks home and you never see them. You don't do, you do not do these things. The idea that someone would be unsafe at school, there was a school shooting in America, you know, and, and. It, it, you know, it's just weird how some things really affect us. There's so much horrible news. There's so much demoralizing news that some of it doesn't even affect us because it just can't, you know. Uh, and so, but, but my wife was really affected by one of the school shootings. And I think I was in America when it happened. And she sent me a message and she said, you know, I just put our daughter, our four-year-old daughter, in a car with a man that we don't really know, to send her to a school, uh, you know, of people that we don't speak the same language, we don't really know them, we don't really have any recourse for if something goes wrong. And she said, I feel completely 
safe doing that. There's something about this man that drives these children to school that like I just sense from this. And again, her senses, her intuition for this stuff is is un, <laughs> it's undefeated, you know. And she said, I feel completely safe putting my four-year-old daughter in a car, sending her to school with, with these people, and that she's going to come back and it's just going to be a beautiful experience for her. There's something really important and educational about getting out of our structure and stepping outside of ourselves. We don't really know our culture unless we experience other cultures. We don't really know our society, our language, our worldview. Some of us think we don't have a belief system, and we do. Everybody does. We don't realize that we have culture, and we do. We don't realize that, you know, Resma Minikim says that un, un, uh, unprocessed trauma, decontextualized trauma in a person, if it's not contextualized, understood, treated, metabolized, it starts to look like personality. In families, it starts to look like family dynamics. And in, in society, it starts to look like culture. But it's not culture. It's actually unprocessed, unmetabolized trauma. And it's hard to really, really grasp that until you step outside of it. So I, I'm going to end this segment and this part of the conversation. And, and we'll take a quick break. But Americans need to travel. Like, we've got to get outside of America. And some people will say, well, yeah, you moved to Turkey because you're privileged. Yes and no. It's not that we had a bunch of money, and it's not that it's easy. Like, yeah, if you moved here with a bunch of money, you're doing great because you just hire translators. You hire people to do everything you don't know how to do. We can't afford all that. Like, it's me and my wife sweating up and down, running up and down these hills in, in the heat, using Google Maps to try to figure out where we're going, using Google Translate to try to get really important things done that, that are like the, the, the life, our family's life. And you can do that too. You know what I'm saying? A lot of people can do that too. I will say the, the privilege that we do have is that we work online. And so we're able to earn U.S. dollars and spend Turkish lira. That's the privilege we do have. And then that gets into the gentrification and things like that. But I'm going to take a quick break because there's, but there's some more beautiful things that I really want to share with you all. Travelers Podcast has been brought to you from day one by the Zakat Foundation, and we're very, very grateful to them. Just very honored to be in partnership with them. Zakat, Z-A-K-A-T, is the pillar of Islam that deals with giving. And Zakat Foundation works all over the world. They do really amazing stuff all over the world. But the things that I love about them are that they're not just like another, they're not an NG, they're not just like these big corporate kind of NGO-y kind of do-good organizations that go in with the mentality of a savior, with a savior complex, uh, with a big kind of corporate approach to things. Some of the things about Zakat Foundation that are really dope. Number one, they it's a Muslim-led organization, but they don't only help Muslims, and they don't use this as an opportunity to proselytize. They're not trying to convert people. Um, another thing is that everywhere they go in the world, they have partners on the ground from that culture from that society that really lead the work and make sure it's done in a way that's dignified, that's culturally relevant, um, in a way that actually makes sense. A lot of people come in with this savior complex and they just do a lot of damage 
because they don't know all the complexities and all the nuances and all the different uh, just angles and, and realities to consider. There's just no way to know all that stuff. You know, I'm talking a lot about the fact that I live in Istanbul. We live in Turkey and people have really, people ask me about politics here all the time. And they're like, in America, you are so outspoken. And I'm like, yo, this isn't my country. And there's a lot of nuance here that I just don't understand. So I don't feel like it would be right for me to, to, to speak a whole lot. I know there are certain things I appreciate. I know there are certain things that are challenging for me or that I, I have questions about, but it's not for me to do that. And one of the things I love about Zakat Foundation is that they partner with people on the ground to make sure that the, what they do is actually beneficial and is led by the people that are in the situation. The people that are suffering, you can either come at it from this colonizer, kind of white supremacist, capitalist, corporate kind of mentality that like, well, if, if you're suffering, if you're in poverty or if you're going through something terrible, it's probably because you messed up. And yeah, that's one way you can look at it. And like, we're better than you. Like, we're not in your situation because we're better than you. So we're going to tell you what you should have done and we're going to fix you. That's one way you can look at it. Those people usually make huge messes and they usually make things profoundly worse. The Kai Foundation doesn't do it that way. It's like you're in this situation for whatever reason, you know, and we as we as believers believe that the divine is writing these things, and it's one of the mysteries of, of the divine, that one of the blessings is that oftentimes the people who go through tremendous struggles, uh, those are people that the divine actually is honoring. And so we see people that are going through turmoil as like, spiritually, these people are probably really profoundly, um, uh, these are probably mountains of people. And we probably have a lot to learn from them. And it's, it's our honor to be able to be with them in those moments. You know, so the divine it gives us these opportunities. Sometimes we're the ones receiving help. Sometimes we're the ones giving it. But it's, it's, a, it's a tremendous human experience on both ends. And so the people that are going through something are the, be- are the ones that know best how to solve it and how to, how to rectify it. So they have to be in, in, in uh, leadership roles, and they have to have a lot to say and teach about and instruct and facilitate about the way that it happens. One of the things is that Zakat Foundation is just so creative. And one of the evidences of that is the fact that they sponsor this podcast because they know that really fostering real meaningful change isn't just about dropping off food baskets and it's not just about dropping off money and taking pictures but culture is a really important part of that so uh, head to Zakat Foundation you can go to their website or you can follow them online Zakat US uh, on social media and just check out the things that they do and whether you're Muslim or not I mean this is just a trusted organization um, these are folks that really put a lot of care and concern, intention, and creativity into the things that they do. So check them out, find a way to help out, and we're very, very grateful. We love you guys over at Zakat Foundation. We've talked many times on this podcast about the amazing organization called Iman, the Inner City Muslim Action Network. Iman also means belief or faith. Uh, Iman was started on the south side of Chicago by my man, Dr. Rami Neshashibi, Palestinian-American brother who grew up on the south side. And their work is incredible, both in Chicago and also they have a, a chapter in Atlanta. They do such incredible work on the ground, you know, 
Uh, like, I don't even know where I would start. I guess one of the things I could talk about is green reentry. So, so many people convert to Islam in prison is one of the things that, if you know that world, you know how, how real that is. And part of what that means for people to convert to Islam, whether it's in prison or in college or after 9-11 or at a Brother Ali concert or wherever people do it, um, you know, I had <laughs> new friends that converted to Islam. Some people, when, when uh, Trump was first elected and there was talk of having a Muslim registry, two of the white, like, progressive homies came over our house and they were like, hey, if there's a registry, we're going to sign it, but I, we just want to learn something about Islam. So can we spend a night with you telling us about Islam? And then just so we know, you know, what, what it's about. So they spent that evening at our house, and we ate, and we drank tea, and we ate sweets, and we burned oud, and we hung out, and we talked. And at the end of the night, as they were about to leave, the man turned to the, the woman and said, I'm doing this for real. And she's like, what do you mean? And he's like, I'm becoming Muslim tonight. Can I do it tonight? And we were like, if you're sure, like, you know, no pressure. It's got to be completely of your own. And he did. So I'm saying this stuff happens all the time. But so many folks convert to Islam in prison. And for everybody, especially converts, it really means um, among, among the, you know, the, with the relationship with the divine and the world of meaning. For so many people, it's about permission to radically reimagine themselves and the way that they, what we are in the world. For me, it's been 30 years. So anyway, a lot of these brothers do this in prison, and they come home, and there's just not opportunities. You know, um, if you read The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander or just know this world, you know how limiting, limiting it is. So one of the things that Iman did was to start buying up these dilapidated, blighted, neglected properties around their office on the south side of Chicago and around their, their, their headquarters, Iman Central. And so they started buying up these houses, and then brothers come home, and women too, brothers and sisters come home, and they're trained, they train each other on how to rehab homes in a way that's environmentally sustainable, sound. So they call it green reentry. And so people come in and they learn these incredibly valuable skills. And so shout out, you know, brothers like Rafi Peterson and my man Taki people that come home, you know, Fahmi, like these folks that come home and they end up having contracting businesses where they're employing other people and they rehabbed and refurbished their own homes and help other people rehab and refurbish their own homes and, and refurbish whole blocks on the south side of Chicago where like now when you go there, there's real community and there's people that are really invested in their, in their lives and in their homes and in their communities. That's just one of amazing programs. You know, our brother Rami's Palestinian, so he was like, man, these Palestinian store owners are coming to the south side of Chicago and they're opening these, bo these like bodegas or like corner store with Lupe, our brother Lupe Fiasco talks about in Food and Liquor. And they're selling, you know, they're, they're operating in these like black food deserts and they're selling alcohol and blunt wraps and potato chips and pork rinds and old meat and bad stuff. We need to talk to these people. These, these are people in our communities. And there's this tension between the black community, which a lot of whom are Muslim, and the Palestinian community, a lot of whom are Muslim. And so he said, and, you know, our Palestinian folks are coming in here because they're, uh, they're fleeing, um, you know, colonial oppression and, uh, you know, they're being displaced from their lands. They're suffering an apartheid. They're suffering a genocide. And they're coming to America. So, like, the things that we're working on are things that we have in common. And so, you know, one of the programs that they have is 
turning these corner, corner stores into places in the hood that sell organic food. And they actually opened a corner store that sells organic food on the south side of Chicago. The work is so dope. I could talk about it for a full episode. And hopefully we could have Dr. Rami on. And shout out to their whole crew. Shout out to Sadia and Alia Bilal and uh, Imam Mansour Sabri. And shout out to, I mean, I could just go on and on and on. My man Jamali and shout out to Rafi and shout out to Taqi and shout out to yeah, Shamar, their whole crew. I love these people so much. And a lot of a lot of the most important spiritual and artistic relationships of my life came from Iman. My wife actually decided to become a Muslim. I fell in love with her just how she is and never said anything to her about converting to Islam. But I could tell she really loved it and liked it and was interested. I'm just like, I'm not pressuring you. So I didn't say a word to her. She was at an event called Taking It to the Streets where I performed, Jurassic 5 performed, Malcolm X's daughter, Ilyasa Shabazz spoke, uh, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf spoke, Imam Zaid Shakar that we talked about spoke, Imam Warathuddin Muhammad, Allah's mercy on him, he was my teacher, he was my leader, He's the that's the community I joined. That was my last time seeing him alive was at this event called Taking It to the Streets on the South Side of Chicago. And my, my current teacher, uh, Dr. Omar Farouk Abdullah, that's the day that I met him. So the last time I saw my former teacher was the day I met. It was almost like I was being adopted that day. But that's the day that my wife decided to become Muslim, was outside jamming with Rocksteady Crew, Popmaster Fable, you know what I'm saying, Ali Shaheed Muhammad, Yasin Bey, uh, Brother Ali, Amir Suleiman. Anyway, I say all this to say, Iman is celebrating their 25th anniversary uh, coming up, and I really wish so badly that I could but on Saturday, September 17th in Chicago, Iman is celebrating its 25th anniversary with a fundraising dinner. The keynote performance will be the greatest living poet, my dear friend, my brother, my teacher, my mentor, Amir Suleiman, who will be performing with Al Tawam, who are the twin hijabi young sis sisters, twins, who have danced with us. So if you, you saw them in the Morning in America video, the Never Learn video, uh, if you've seen us perform at festivals, you may have seen us with them. So head to Iman Central, I-M-A-N Central, C-E-N-T-R-A-L dot org slash 2022 fundraiser to get your tickets. And check out the work that Iman does. Um, I want everybody to be aware of this organization because this is the real type of grassroots organizing that grows into systems of empowerment for people people really genuinely working together to be able to build some self-determination, to really work in life-on-life -life community with one another to change the state of the world. We're really, really so honored and grateful to be joined and to be in partnership with Inner City Muslim Action Network, our dear family at Iman. There's so much that I could say about living in Istanbul and... Um, I would, I would love to say it all, but it, there's just way too much to talk about all at once. But one of the things that I really want to talk about is the fact that even with all of the nuance and all the complexities of life here vis-a-vis -vis religion and, and modernism and uh, the, you know, secularism and what have you, it's, it really is, there, there's, you just see the beauty in tension the beauty in bringing together things that seem like they should be at odds with each other or maybe really are at odds with each other. I mean, it feels to me like half of this, this culture is very secular. 
and especially on the European side. I mean, they, they do a lot to really show you that. There's certain markings that they do to show you that, that they're secular. And half the people are religious and to varying degrees. You know, you see some people wearing very religious, traditional clothing, especially in certain neighborhoods. And you see some people that don't dress like that, but they're at the mosque for all five daily prayers and things like that. But even the secular people believe in, and this is again my observation, but preserving public spaces that are sacred places, like the sacred public spaces. Um, and if you look at the way that societies like spatially are set up and organized, and what do they do? What's the impact that they have on the heart, on the spiritual heart, on the soul of the people? You know, this is, was a society that when it, was, when it was built up, they had tremendous wealth. I mean, they were, they were the sultans of the Islamic world, which had tremendous wealth. Uh, there's this idea, like, in the way that, that um, history is told by Europeans, that unfortunately... Uh, you know, uh, Europeans were very threatened by the reality of Islam and Muslims. And so there's these narratives that are created, and a lot of times the Muslims are the foil in the Europeans' stories about themselves. And, you know, so they, they talk about Muslims as being barbaric and Muslims as being backward and Muslim as, Muslims as being uh, these, like, third-world impoverished nations and, you know... The, the reality is that um, the Muslims have developed so much of science and art uh, and architecture and, I mean, so much of mathematics and astronomy and philosophy. Not only did the Muslims develop it, but they also preserved European stuff. So when, I mean, forgive me for saying this if anyone is associated with the Catholic Church, but it's well known that the Catholic Church had a philosophical war within uh, the secular, within uh, Europe and in the world, that they, they were opposed to, to science and specific things about science and philosophy. They were very threatened by it. And so that's where we get this idea that there's a battle between science and religion. That doesn't come from Islam. I mean, in, in Islam, the creation is seen as the expression of the divine, and so we study it as a sacred practice. And we also honor it. You know, for 1,400 years, it's been expressly written in our text that the water has rights, that air has rights, that animals have rights. I mean, that women have rights. You know what I'm saying? Women have rights. Uh, servants have rights, employees have rights, children have rights, men have rights. Um, I mean, bees have rights, camels have rights, dogs have rights. I mean, these are things that people did not express outwardly. They just, they, you know, they, it was very rare. And in many cases, Islam was the first time that these things were ever publicly expressed in the way that they were. The Prophet Muhammad in his last sermon saying that there's no superiority of Arab over non-Arab or non-Arab over Arab or black over white or white over black. This is the first rep reported public anti-racist speech. It was by the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, in any case. So when, the, when Europe was having these difficulties, <laughs> the Muslims were preserving all of this stuff. So much of what uh, we have now as a global society by, by way of European philosophers, uh, 
Plato and Socrates. There, there was more that existed, but a lot of it was being burned by European Christians. And the Muslims actually saved it all and preserved it all. And one of our greatest, philosophers, uh, one of our greatest uh, um, scholars in the entirety of the religion, Imam al-Ghazali, he actually studied and, and wrote an encyclopedia of philosophy, of, of what he learned and observed of the philosophers. Then he wrote a book after that called The Incoherence of Philosophy. So he actually wrote a, a, a work challenging philosophy, but before he did that, and almost refuting some of it to a, to a degree. But before he did that, he wrote an entire work saying, I have studied this. I've honored this field of study enough for me to master it and to be able to write and speak authoritatively about it because I've really taken the time to learn it. There's a lot to, to learn there about like, if I'm arguing or disagreeing with somebody, can I thoroughly articulate their point in a way that would satisfy and please them? Because if I can't, then I don't really know what I'm talking about. So you can, if we, and, and that's something that if we took on in American life or in modern life, in postmodernist life, that if we took that on, that like if I disagree with somebody, before I refute them, before I argue with them, can I actually step into their shoes and articulate their point of view in a way that, that satisfies them to where they say, yes, that's what I'm saying. All the people that I've ever known and I've ever come across that dislike Islam, and warn people about Islam. It's like, okay, first tell me what Islam is. I've never seen one of those people be able to explain it thoroughly and with any level of sophistication. And some of these people I respect in other ways, you know, but they, it's just like you don't know what you're talking about. You might still disagree with Islam, and that's your right to do that. The Quran says there are people that are going to believe in this, and there are people that don't. So we're, we believe it, and you don't. For us, is our way. For you, is your way. That's fine. We share the world with people that disagree with us. That's written into to, to the, the text of Islam. And we honor those people's rights. And when people do have communities, you know, other religions, for example, when they lived with Muslims, so when Jewish people, when, when Jewish commun Christian communities lived amongst Muslims, they had Jewish judges that they went and saw. When they had disputes, the Jewish people went to Jewish judges. Christian people went to Christian judges and so on. You know, you shouldn't have to live by our laws, but you should have to live by your own if that's the community that you say you belong to. So this stuff was saved. And I, I just say all this to say that even within this society that, that struggles with its own relationship, with its history, and with the spiritual tradition and what have you, what they maintain is sacred place in public space. It's one of the things that's very important. And you just learn so much about the way that this society organized itself to have it to impact the human heart. So in this bustling city, for example, in Istanbul, it's busy. You know what I'm saying? We go to a, a neighborhood called Eminunu. One of my daughters just loves it so much. Dad, can we go to Eminunu? And you take the ferry over there. So we're going to ferry across the Bosphorus. You're sailing on the water and you're just seeing the Hagia Sophia. You're seeing the Suleimania. You're seeing the Blue Mosque. You're seeing these skyscrapers and you're seeing these rolling hills. And you know what I'm saying? There'll be somebody on the, on the, on the ferry that just brings an, an electric guitar and an amp and they're playing like some hybrid 
of of like psychedelic rock and traditional Turkish folk songs on an electric guitar and somebody else is playing the flute. You know what I'm saying? And there are people feeding these like these things that kind of look like bagels to birds and birds are like coming and taking uh, bread out of their hand. This is what it's like. You know what I mean? And this whole thing costs like 50 cents to get on this boat. And so we're going across, we go to Emenuna, you get there, and that's not the Grand Bazaar, but the bazaar that Turks actually go to, which is the the Spice Bazaar or the Egyptian Bazaar, depending on how you translate it. You go to this old neighborhood with these really tiny packed streets full of, you know, scents. So you're like smelling coffee with cardamom in it, and you're smelling all these different spices, and people are selling handcrafted goods and and all of these old really beautiful things and you know there's there's like people who feed birds and they know how to make the birds fly in and fly out in different patterns it's i mean it's ill it's amazing and then there's people there from all over the world you know what i mean so there's like you know there's there's europeans there in their tiny little shorts and they're taking pictures and they look like they just got done shopping at Zara or something like that next to a, a man in a turban and his wife in a in a in a face veil and then some other people you know uh next to an African family from look like they're from West Africa you know all of this stuff is going on and I do have to say that when I'm in that space it's weird my relationship with my dad you know my dad died over 10 years ago of suicide and you know, I had a weird relationship with my dad, but whenever I did things that were like really outside the norm, my dad thought that stuff was cool. And I think about him so much living in Istanbul because I just think he would think it was cool. You know what I mean? The fact that I picked my family up and moved here, like I think he would think that that was cool. So you're in this environment and it's, I mean, it's busy. There are times if you go there when it's like, you literally are in a sea of people and you're like, your chest is pressed up against their back and you can't, you, it's hard to walk. You know, it's going to take you an hour to go two blocks to get where you're going. But then there's this mosque. My, one of my favorite mosques in Istanbul is in that neighborhood of Emenunu. It's called Rustem Pasha Jami. And so it's right in the middle of this neighborhood. But you walk up this old staircase. I mean, this this mosque is 500 years old. You walk up this old winding uh, stone staircase to get to the second level, the second floor. And then you walk inside, and there's this beautiful courtyard, and suddenly it's quiet, it's cool, it's breezy, it's peaceful. And you walk into this mosque. And you wash up before you go in, so you get like cool water, you wash your hands and face, and you rinse your mouth, and you wash, you take your socks off, wash your feet, and you walk into this beautiful mosque, and it's it's like the blue mosque, but it's tiny. It's really small. If you scroll back on my Instagram feed, you'll see it, just this, this beautiful blue turquoise mosque on the inside. You walk in, it's beautifully, just ornately detailed, but all of these tiles come from a city in in uh, in Turkey called Iznik which is not far from where we are. But Iznik used to be the city of Nicaea uh, when, it, when it was part of Constantinian Christianity, Christendom. That was the place, that, just like this was Constantinia. Uh, prior to that even, this was the place where the Nicene councils were held, where the, where the Catholic Church asserted that this will be Christianity and this won't. This is the type of Christianity that we're all going to serve or that we're all going to practice. And any practice outside of this is illegal. 
That's the city where that happened. That's also the city where they developed painting tiles and turquoise. This, the color now that we call turquoise. Why do we call that turquoise? Because it was so synonymous with the Muslims and the Turks, and the French word for Turks is turquoise. That's what they call Turks, which basically means non-Arab Muslims. So that's what they would call, you know, a, like Central Asian and European Muslims, they would call them turquoise. They called them Turks. And if somebody became a Muslim, they call it turning Turk. They would say he turned Turk, she turned Turk meaning that you joined this other civilization. And so the place, where, the place where basically the Trinity was solidified, was voted on, is now the place where these tiles are created. And so you're in this beautiful like mosque, and it's quiet in there. And again, I bring my daughter in there, and if there are people there, a lot of times it's, it's, it's small, it's quiet, it's peaceful. The way that the light shines in there, it was built by Mimar Sinan, who's the great, um, the great like builder of the city of Istanbul. And Mimar Sinan, there's a, the, my other favorite mosque is built by him as well, called Suleymaniyah. Suleymaniyah is a big mosque complex that was also a hospital, it was also a university, and it still is. It was also a, a Turkish bath, where, a hammam, where people could you know, go and promote public cleanliness. It was a gathering place. They had cultural events there. They had all sorts, and they still do. My wife actually did a week-long training of Islamic therapists at the Suleymaniyah. So it's still like that. And Mimar Sinan is buried there. But Mimar Sinan is a convert to Islam. He was born a Christian. So for me, as like a convert that's, a, that's also an artist, like I look and I see one of our greatest artists is a convert to Islam. And, you know, he's the great, the great builder, uh, the great architect of Istanbul. His students are the ones that built the Blue Mosque. So in any case... I just want to talk on the second part about just this, the, the, the kind of reality of how spirituality shows up in public life. But you're in this beautiful place, right? It's in its an oasis, right in the middle of the bustling marketplace where you can stop and, and get out of the hustle and bustle of life and stop and actually have a moment of quiet to reflect, either by yourself or with your countrymen, like with the people that you live with and do life with. And there are these mosques everywhere in the city. Like there's a thousand mosques in the city of Istanbul. You literally can't go more than a few blocks. And one of the things that I'm going to cry when I talk about this, but the adhan, the call to prayer that you heard a little bit of earlier, every day, five times a day, in 1,000 mosques across this city, a living human being goes to the mosque and they get on the loudspeaker and they deliver this beautiful call to prayer that's like an operatic level, like an opera level, a classical vocal performance five times a day. And everyone hears it, religious or not. You hear it five times a day. The first one is, is before the sun rises. The next one is right at around midday. And then there's one in the afternoon. There's another one right when the sun sets, and there's another one uh, when the sky is completely dark. 
These are the five prayer times for the Muslims. And you hear it from your home. You hear it if you're at the doctor. You hear it if you're in the marketplace. You hear it if you're at the some of the malls. Actually, they do have modern malls that you can go in and you won't hear the event. But f imagine what it would be like f for to be in a place where human beings are on the loudspeaker announcing to everybody what they understand to be the, the most important existential meaning of life. And it's profoundly beautiful and it's a human being doing it. There's something about the fact that you hear them clear their throat. You hear them swallow. Sometimes you hear them cry. Sometimes you hear them cough or clear their throat. You know, Sometimes you, you hear them breathing. Sometimes you hear them turning the mic off and on. You hear them adjusting their, their clothes. Like these are human beings that are delivering this to everyone, and everyone is being reminded five times a day of how we understand the existential meaning of life. So no matter what distractions we're caught up in, everyone in the society is being reminded this five times a day. And the words of the Adhan, they say, Allahu Akbar. And people joke now, that, like if you look up Allahu Akbar on, on YouTube, it's a bunch of jokes about, that's what people say when they kill people. Allahu Akbar means that there is nothing more important in life. There's nothing greater in life than to live in service of, in solidarity with, and pleasing the source of all meaning. That's the most important. It's more important than money. It's more important than fame. It's more important than identity. It's more important than power. It's more important than than distraction. It's more important than even things that really matter. All those things I mentioned, they mean something and they matter. But nothing is more important than being in alignment with the meaning of life. That's what Allahu Akbar means. When we say Allah, we're not talking about a different God from somebody else, but in the same, but also we kind of are. Allah means the unseen infinite source of all things universal one source for everybody and what we say when we, and what we mean when we say allahu akbar is that solidarity memory of service of awareness of the the most the most central meaning of life is, is what's most important in every affair, in everything that we do. That's the most important. And so that's what you hear most during the event. Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. Then they say, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah, which means that nothing is worthy of serving except for that one thing. We don't have ultimate obedience to anything else. All of our obedience is secondary to that one. And then when they say Muhammad Rasulullah, Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. You know, that, that means something very specific to the Muslims, but what should be understood is that what that means is that the human being's most real potential is to be a person that's entirely virtuous and beautiful and loving and gracious and generous and forgiving and magnanimous and strong and wise and a defender of people, you know. And I know people have heard all sorts of things about Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. We could have another conversation about that. I guarantee whatever you think you know, you probably don't, you probably just don't, like it's been told to you and presented a certain way. I get it. I really do. 
I really get it. Islam is the best thing that has the worst PR. I get it. You know, if I didn't have the experiences I had, I might have the same opinion. But when we say Muhammad is the messenger of Allah, which is the, the, the third thing in the Adhan, what it means is that there are human beings that are completely virtuous. That is what the human potential is. We don't believe that any of us are that, by the way. So there's no self-righteousness in Islam, not in a true practice of Islam. We believe that even our saintly people have some sort of relationship with uh, inconsistencies and, and, you know, with mistakes and with what we would call haram or sins, like every human being. Allah says in the Quran, if, if the human being didn't sin, we would replace them with something that did. So it's part of the human function, you know. We don't have the same, when we say sin or haram or, you know, something that's forbidden, we don't have the same relationship of saying, like, there are saints and sinners, there's good people and bad people. It's not the way that Islam says. Everybody has to have this tension with our better selves and then the reality of, of our, like, limited, finite ability to live up and be what we want to be. And that's what this, that's what this whole project is is like understanding that I, I am a soul, and my soul is the breath of the divine. That's my realest self. Then I also have a spiritual heart that's experiencing all this stuff that has mysteries. And then I'm also an intellect, and my intellect has all these cognitive frames and ideologies and stuff. And then I'm an ego. That's My ego is just saying, do what you want. Just get it by any means necessary. Whatever makes you feel good is what you're supposed to do. And my ego is working with my real animalistic appetites, passions, desires, needs. And it's hard, you know. And then we also believe in, uh, we do believe uh, that there is a voice of evil. There is a personification of evil. And that evil doesn't fight the divine, but that evil is actually here to make us, the, to, to try to prove that the human being is just their mistakes. The human being is just the worst of who they are. So when you say, so-and-so is trash, men are trash, and this people are trash. And when they say, you know, um, black people are like this, and, you know, anything that makes a human being out to be the worst characteristics that someone could point out in them, that's satanic to us. That's how we understand the devil. And so when we say Muhammad Rasulullah, and then also Muhammad is one of a group of exemplars, like there are exemplars. We just don't claim to be them, but that's our human potential. And so, you know, that's what a baby is. A baby is a potential exemplar, and all of us are striving to be that, and we strive to do that till the day that we die, and then we hope that when the reckoning, when, it, when it's all said and done, we hope that we did our best. And so, Muhammad is part of a group, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, peace be upon him, is part of a cohort of messengers that some of them are named in the scriptures, but most of them aren't. That there, there are many, many, many of them that came to every single group of people. So everybody's wisdom tradition came from one of these prophets or messengers or reminders or sages or saints or exemplars from the family of humanity. So the, the wisdom traditions that exist in all cultures, they have a, one source, and they have a through line of universal virtue that actually points to the oneness of the of the divine, that points to the oneness of the unseen. The, just trying to tell you what's being said in the Adhan so you understand what's being said over the speaker five times a day, every day, by a living human being. You know what I'm saying? And then it says, come to prayer and come to success. 
come to the real success of the soul, the harvest of the soul. Hayya ala salat means come and pray. Hayya ala al-falah means come to the harvest of the human soul, the harvesting of the best of human life. And then we say, Allahu Akbar and la ilaha illallah. And so this is announced over the speakers five times a day. Uh, we call it the adhan, or some people pronounce it azan. So if you go to YouTube and put in adhan, A-D-H-A-N or A-Z-A-N, I mean, look at what, and you can see people visiting Muslim countries and them just breaking down in tears hearing it. When you hear this sound come up from a, a chorus of voices throughout the landscape of the city, it's one of the most profoundly moving experiences you can have. And, you know, I, I'm sad for myself that I ever lived without it. Like what I say to people is, what if you lived in, imagine living in a place. I think I said this to Kiese Lehman, I think, or I think I was saying this to my man Kiese. What if the place you lived actually helped you become the person you want to be? That's what I'm experiencing in, in Istanbul. That's what I'm experiencing here. Like in America, I had to fight for, for what I want to be. You know, like I'm born into all this stuff. And I felt like I constantly had to fight against the environment that I lived in, that that environment at all times was trying to make me participate in something that on the deepest levels I hate. I hate white supremacy and I'm born in a white family. I hate, you know, it's evil. We just talked about what the what, and I'm not talking about European people. European weren't European people weren't white until rich landowners created that idea, so that the poor people would instead of fighting the rich would start working for them. That's that's what that is, and all of these ideas of supremacy that say that some people aren't valuable, we see all of those as being satanic. In the Quran, there's a conversation between the divine and the angels about creating the human being. Because nature is so, there's, there's such harmony in nature, and then here comes the human being. And anybody that talks about it, the environmental crisis we're in will say, like, look what the human beings are doing. They were, you know, <laughs> Louis C.K. has this whole bit about God talking to people. And what are you doing? I gave you food. Just pick it up and eat it. Yeah, but it doesn't have bacon on it. I needed a job. What is a job? I wanted air conditioning. I wanted a car. Why? You know, that's his way of, <laughs> that's his way of talking about it. But in the Quran, the divine is talking to, to the angels and saying, I'm going to bring, I'm going to create something. I'm going to create a being that's going to be able to make decisions for itself. And it's actually going to be the representative of the divine in creation. And the angels ask the question, aren't they going to cause a lot of trouble? Aren't they going to cause bloodshed? Aren't they going to cause mayhem? Aren't they going to do all kind of mischief? Isn't there going to be all kind of problems in your creation? We're singing your praises. Why would you do that? And Allah says, I know what you don't know, and then creates the human being. And then teaches the human being the nature of creation which is the introduction to science. Science is part of our tradition. It teaches them about, and then all of the, then they all bow down to the first human beings. And, but then Satan in, our, in the Quran is the one that says, he doesn't deserve that. 
He doesn't deserve that. I'm better than him. You know, so this is the origin of all superiority complexes, of all these dehumanizing ideas in the world. The idea that women aren't fully human or black people aren't fully human or poor people aren't fully human or workers aren't fully human or the idea that somebody is not human and that a human being is a low thing and that a human being should be looked at with skepticism because of our proclivity to, to oppress ourselves and others. We do have that proclivity, and so we have to be aware of that. And that's what the spiritual traditions are about, is like, hey, you get, yes, you're a soul, you're a heart, you're an intellect, and you're an ego, you're a, and, and you live in the body of an animal. So let's, let's take this life seriously, and let's try to get it right, you know. But man, I'm living in a place where the financial reality you know, you can't, I cannot bring my American entitlement to this place. It's not going to work. These expectations that I have that things will be done the way that I want it, when I want it, when I'm expecting it, I didn't realize how freaking entitled I was. Because I just thought that things were supposed to, if I got the money for it, it's supposed to happen. If there's some person who's advertises that they're going to do something, they're supposed to do it, how they say they're going to do it, when I expect it. And the, the Westerners that come here, you immediately really start to check your entitlement, your expectation to the things that you desire. Just because I want it doesn't mean that I deserve to have it. And I'm just not, it's just not going to be like that. The things that happen, you're going to get them. If you really need something, you will get it. And, these pe- and the people will help you. But it, <laughs> it's just this never-ending adventurous web of in, unpre, not being predictable. Is it unpredictability? Unpredictability sounds more writer, but of, of unpredictable, not, not being able to be predictable. It's the most unpredictable place I've ever lived. Something is happening every single week that some new thing you got to figure out. And also just, I'm an immigrant. Me and my family are what they call Yabenja. We're, we're immigrants. And we don't speak the language. You know, and... There is a thing here where there are, there is some um, anti-immigrant sentiments here because of the fact that the there's a lot of stuff and I'm I'm not going to go all into the, all the nuances of it but they are experiencing a very real financial crisis it's not a joke and in a lot of ways to a lot of people it feels like it's because of Im- it's related to immigration and so there's some anti-immigration sentiment the and I, so. There's something else that I'm just going to ask for the people who pray. I'm going to have a request for you at the end of this. But, you know, I've, I've lost, me and my wife have both lost tremendous, like, have lost a lot of weight. I gain mine back and lose it and gain it and lose it. Um, but, I mean, I, I have a studio here. I didn't have that at home. Uh, an office slash studio where I come and do my work. Um, my friends here... The, the people, that the Westerners that move here, the Western Muslims that move here are really the people that I want to be with because they tend to be people that are very serious. They take this religion very seriously. And they're people who, while I was out, you know, building a career and rapping and all this other stuff, they were studying. And so now they're helping me to access knowledge and to teach me. You know, I'm slowly but surely learning to recite the Quran properly and other things. Um, 
But there are people also that understand the culture that we come from. And they understand that we are not here to divorce ourselves from our culture. We still are who we are. We're part of our people, you know, and we bring that wherever we go. You know, my, my wife is Puerto Rican and there's, there are, it's amazing how many Puerto Ricans there are. Um, you know, there's a, another family that's Puerto Rican and then there's a brother here who's Puerto Rican and his wife is, I think she's um, from Tunis, Tunisia. But, but I'm like, man, it's like 12 of y'all. I'm sure you guys are going to have a, a parade soon. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But the fact that like they're here and they're Puerto Rican and like they're in Turkey, you know what I'm saying? And they're all converts to Islam. There's a lot of Puerto Ricans converting to Islam. Um, and, you know, and they're here and they're, and they're being, and my daughters are Puerto Rican, you know, and that matters a lot to us. It's very... I, all, all the time, like I have this series of questions that I ask my daughters every day. What's your name? How do you spell it? When is your birthday? Who's your mother? Who's your father? Who is this? Who is this? Where do you live? What's your address? When's your birthday? What's your, how do you, what's your phone number? And I say, you live in, you live in Turkey. Do you love Turkey? Yeah, we love Turkey. Are you Turkish? No. <laughs> We're Puerto Rican. <laughs> you know what I mean? I always tell them every time we get to that, I said, that's a really beautiful thing to be. And, um, you know, so the people that live here, the other Westerners that live here, are religious in a way that helps me become, helps me take it more seriously. Like, one of the things that I've learned just in getting, you know, I'm 45 years old, I'm just learning about myself that there are some things I have the inner motivation to do, and there's other things I needed to be, I need to be motivated externally. So, like, if I'm going to really work out hard, I need a trainer because that's not going to come from me. <laughs> like, I don't have the knowledge or the discipline or the motive. But I have a really great trainer here, you know. Um, some of the, And he trains a lot of the Americans. And if I shout him out, some of you guys might be, some of the other Americans might get mad because his schedule would fill up. But because he speaks English and he's an amazing trainer. If you message me, if you hit me with a DM, maybe I'll share, maybe I'll, I'll share it with you. But he's an incredible trainer, and he trains a bunch of us. And there's like a lot of overweight Americans coming here, and he's really good at helping us um, get healthy. One of the times that I traveled, I, I left for the long tour. I've been working with, out, out with him for a year. And he's this really strong you know, Turkish man. He rides a motorcycle. You know, he's cool, and he's tough. And he, you know, you see him, and it's like, you don't mess with this dude. But the Turks are so sweet. And, like, Muslim men show... Uh, um, express affection with each other. Like, it's just one of the things we're known for. But, um, you know, I, I, got my, I got a COVID shot before going to America. It's not a political statement. I just did it. Um, it's not a political statement, but I got, my, I got my third COVID booster shot before I went to America to go on tour. And I got sick, and so I couldn't come to our last training session. And so I texted my trainer, and I said... Um, I'm sorry, I, I can't come today. I'm sick. And he said, but you're leaving tomorrow, right? And I'm not going to see you for like six, four months or something. And I said, yeah. And he just sent me this sad face. And I was like, I thought he was busting my chops because I wasn't. And he was like, I just, I really wanted to say goodbye to you. And it was so funny. It was like so romantic because it was raining. And I was like, I was really sick. I had a fever. And I got all bundled up in my raincoat. And I walked to the gym's like a mile and a half from my house. And I walk up this big hill to get there. And I was like, man, I'm going to go in there. And I went in there. And like, so I'm standing there. <laughs> just came in from the rain. It's really like a rom-com or something. But like, man, I'm standing there. And he, he hugged me. And he was just like, you're working so hard. I love you. 
He's like, dear brother, I love you. I'll think about you every day. Be careful. Don't forget. Don't forget about me. You know, we both had tears in our eyes, and it's just like this is what these people are like. This is just how they are. You know, their their hearts are alive. They're going through a lot. You know, but their hearts are alive. And so this is a place that's that I'm living that's helping me be the person that I want to be and that I believe that I can be. And so that's there's a lot more that I could say, but I'm just going to end with this. And I'm going to ask for the people who pray, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to do something a little selfish here and ask you to pray for us. And then also for the people that don't call it prayer, but just hold a good thought, I'm going to ask you to hold a good thought. Um, they're cracking down on residencies. Uh, one of the political things was related to the economy is people not being able to stay in Turkey. And, you know, we're not going to school here. We don't work for a company here. So technically we're considered like extended tourists. And pretty soon we're going to be applying for a third year. It'll be, you know, coming up in a couple months, it'll be two years that we've been here and we're going to be applying for a third year. And I don't want to leave. Like, I just don't want to have to leave, you know. Um because we, we're building a life here. And it's one of the things that I really, really have started to identify with immigrants, man. I've always loved immigrants. We live in Minneapolis and like, man, both as a Muslim and just as somebody living in Minneapolis where everybody, you know, it's just such an overwhelmingly white Lutheran Scandinavian place. And God bless the white Lutheran Scandinavians, you know what I'm saying? But it's like, it was really dope when the Somalis started showing up in big numbers and you know, Mexican homies and South and Central American homies. and But man, people really struggle because you're building a life that feels like that could be taken away from you at any moment. And you just want to live like you love you love this place or it's the best option for you at the moment. And like you just want to live and you want your family to be OK. And you want to you want to start a new life and you want to build a life. But at any moment, it feels like it could be taken away from you. And until and unless you get citizenship, you know, um, my man Mo Amr will be on the show soon, inshallah. You know, he's, he lived in America for like 25 years or something. I can't, I can't remember how long, 20 years, something, before he got his citizenship. And he traveled the world without a passport. He was not a citizen of any country. He's Palestinian. Their land has been stolen from them. I'm sorry, I meant no words about that, you know, um, uh, you know that that their their land is being stolen from them, and there's being a genocide enacted upon them, and it's it's a it's a it's just a colonialism apartheid thing that's going on. And I know it's very nuanced and all this stuff, but that's what these people are experiencing. And you know, so their family left, and they lived in Kuwait, and then they had to leave Kuwait because of the war, because America, you know, did a war there, Saddam Hussein, all this stuff. So they left and they moved to Houston, Texas, and he's a beautiful brother. And he, you know, and part of what he talks about in his new show, so check out the show called Mo, M-O, it's on Netflix. Uh, your brother here is rapping at the end of it. And it always makes me cry when, he, when we get to the end of the series, because my man worked, Mo worked so hard. And he finally did this show, and the show is dope. And Toby and Wigway is in it, and Bun B is in it, and Paul Wall is in it, and... You know, it's just ill, man. It's so dope. And then it's it's all based on Mo's life. I've been f- close friends with him for 15 years. And um, right at the end, I won't tell you what the end scene is, but I will tell you that your brother here is spitting some hot fire over uh, um, a really 
respected Palestinian group throwing down called Dam. So shout out to Dam. And anyway, I really am relating to that. You know, like we just my my wife and I just realized like man, our girls are getting bigger. One of them is starting to go to school, and so we needed to buy like a wardrobe so that we could hang up her school clothes. And we're buying it and we're sitting there putting it together and it's like, damn, are we going to be allowed to stay here? And what are we going to do with all this stuff? You know what I mean? We uprooted our family. Are we going to have to leave again? And man, this is what immigrants are dealing with on a regular basis. And um, so if you're a person that prays, I'm going to ask you to pray for this. And if you're a person that holds a good thought, I'm going to ask you to hold a good thought for this. But my family and I are going to be reapplying for another year of residency here, and we're really hoping that it works out. Um, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. We really appreciate it very, very much. Um, there's so much more that I could say, but I'm going to, I'm going to end it here. And uh, I really appreciate all of you that listen and all of you. I, I, we really would love if you would subscribe wherever you listen to this. Uh, if you go to YouTube and subscribe to our YouTube page um, and like and share and comment and rate and do all of that stuff, it really helps the show a lot. Um, we also uh, have, if you go to brotherali.com, that's really our headquarters. You can sign our mailing list. There's a section there called join where there's different ways to interact with the show and support the show. It really means a lot. We've got amazing guests coming up. Some of them we've already recorded and I'm feeling so grateful to be doing this thing, and I'm really happy that you guys are the ones that are here from the very beginning, so bless you all for that. Traveler's Podcast is, um, well, first of all, I want to give special shout-out to Zakat Foundation, to Iman, uh, special thanks to Amna Mirza, Mansur Panawala, Rami Neshashibi, to Sadia Nawab, special shout to Last Word, special shout to Mark from Medina Hip Hop that created the logo, special shout out to Ant for letting us use the theme music. The music is the song The Travelers uh, from the Us album, so you can go and check that out as well. Shout to Darian Washington, um, shout to Jordan Daly. My man Jordan Daly. Shout out to Slug and Ant from Atmosphere who just had their birthday. My man Slug just turned 50. I love those guys beyond words. Uh, shout out to everyone that's ever helped with this podcast. Aida Rashid, uh, Yusuf Fahmi. Um, shout out to everybody that's helped with this podcast. We appreciate you. Uh, it's produced by Brendan Kelly, a.k.a. BK1. And it is a production of Travelers Media. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. See you next week.